Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. As we head into winter, it seems perfectly appropriate to talk about climate change, and there's scarcely any person better to talk with about that than Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. If you're a regular Northern Spirit Radio listener, then you'll already know that I welcome him as guest host every three months, so it's your lucky day. Before I hand you over to Peterson, I want to remind you about a recent interview I did with Bahare Zare Bahiri which has become a special cause for me. If you haven't yet listened to my interview with Bahar, I strongly urge you to do so. You can hear it via the northernspiritradio.org website, and I entitled it, Iranian Beauty Queen, Teacher, and Dentist Seeks Freedom. Bahar is and has been all of those things, a beauty queen, a teacher, and a dentist. She's from Iran, currently with asylum in the Philippines. She could really use your help and advocacy to protect her from a vengeful Iranian regime, while both the government and people in the Philippines are afraid to even be near Bahar for fear of being in the path of Iranian reprisals. Truly, Bahar is experiencing extreme penalties for simply advocating for the freedom of Iranian women, and she could use your help now. But on to today's agenda. Peterson Toscano will take you on quite a journey into the soul of climate activism with five different guests today, whether it's dealing with the thoughts and issues surrounding sexual and gender minorities or delving deeply into the Bible, or following the science, politics, and culture around climate change, Peterson brings a piercing intellect and a gentle spirit to the work. Learn more about the breadth of his work at petersontoscano.com, but right now, I'll turn the mic over to Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Thank you, Mark. Today's show includes four artists. Clara Fang is a poet. Priscilla Talley writes professionally as a nonfiction writer. She's also a photographer. Lynn Newman is a dancer and the director of Artichoke Dance Company. And Jason Davis, he's a composer and plays the double bass. Each one of these artists uses their art to experience the world around them. They also seek to better understand and communicate the many issues connected to our rapidly changing climate. But first, we need to take a trip to the past to glean wisdom for our present day. To do so, I bring you to the place where I live, the Susquehanna Valley in central Pennsylvania. Andrew Stuhl is a professor of environmental studies and sciences at Bucknell University. Hearing him speak, though, he sounds more like a philosopher, a historian, or an inspirational speaker. Yeah, as a professor, I take the view that I'm not a Pez dispenser of knowledge, right? I'm not standing up there giving little bits of information to people, hoping they digest them and then become something different. My view is more of a facilitator of important conversations. So I work really hard to try to create a classroom that is a community where students feel like they want to explore because they're committed to the other people in the room. They want to learn different perspectives and they want to take those perspectives into making themselves better people. 
and their communities better places. Andrew is not originally from the Susquehanna Valley, but he has a keen interest in our local history. Strangely enough, though, it was his research in the American and Canadian Arctic that helped him prepare for his current research project here in central Pennsylvania. I lived in a small town in the Canadian Arctic called Inuvik Northwest Territories for two years. And I came to see that that region of the world was actually changing rapidly. People's communities were changing, economies were changing, the river, the tundra, the ice sheets were changing so quickly. And I wanted to learn more about why that was happening and how people of the Arctic could adapt. I looked to the past, to the study of history, to understand where we should go in the future. Through archives and written records and interviews with people, I found a lot of different examples over the last 150 years of similar rapid changes. And so I thought, wow, these would be really interesting lessons and case studies to draw from. His research in the Susquehanna Valley all centers on a major weather event in 1972, a giant storm called Agnes. Tropical storm Agnes, when you look at the numbers, it's really hard to keep in your head. Over $3 billion of, of damage just in the Susquehanna Valley, 50 people lost their lives. 200,000 people were rendered homeless for at least a year. And in today's numbers, you know, if you want to just think about the finances, that's you know, over $15 billion. Uh, so that's trying to index or quantify a lot of loss. Now, this project on Hurricane Agnes and Tropical Storm Agnes in the Susquehanna Valley Obviously, very different place, completely different region, different histories, different landscapes, different communities and cultures. But the method and the approach is actually, I think, pretty similar. The big overall question is, how can we understand the past to help us in the future, or even the present day? Andrew and his team have begun speaking with residents about their own experiences during and after Agnes. I love learning about what makes people who they are, their stories and their life's journeys. When you ask someone about themselves, they light up just because they like to be recognized and heard and regarded. In some of the interactions I've had with people about Tropical Storm Agnes, I can sense an element of that, that they're happy to talk about something that was really important to them. It's important for us to understand just how massive, historic, and important Agnes was for its time and for today. Tropical Storm Agnes is a particularly historic storm just for the scale of the storm and the impact in Pennsylvania in particular. It wasn't a Category 5 hurricane. It wasn't the most intense hurricane, but it stalled over top of Pennsylvania because of other weather patterns. And it dropped an incredible amount of rain, 20 inches over three days. So if you think about the annual rainfall that Susquehanna River Basin would get in any one year, in three days in 1972, it got half of that rainfall. And so across its entire track, there were $3.1 billion worth of damage. And in Pennsylvania, it was $2.1 billion of that. There is a lot of history stored up in the people who survived Agnes. The sights, sounds, and even the smells are still fresh in local residents' memories. We are 
seeing a lot of stories about the smell of Agnes, which really surprised me as a researcher. I'm used to dealing with history in the written word and analyzing why someone wrote a letter to another person or tracking how an idea or a historical event happens through correspondence or newspaper clippings. But when talking with people about Agnes, they remember the smell of the mud that was left on their belongings and in their homes and their clothes. It's called flood mud. And if you talk with people who lived through Hurricane Agnes, it's something that is very, very close to the top of mind. Flood mud, smell of decay, the smell of uh, dirt. How quickly a memory can come back to you if you smell something in the present day. Maybe it seems kind of small to say this, but people often hang their grief on to really concrete things, particular things. And for some reason, there's a lot of stories about pianos <laughs> with Hurricane Agnes. I think it's because they are so hard to move. They knew the storm was coming. The news was talking about it. Hey, this tropical storm is moving up the coast of the Atlantic. It's stalling over Pennsylvania. We are seeing lots of rainfall, you know, flood warning. All the systems were in place then in the 1970s. Please, you know, move or get ready. And so people had, you know, experiences in our towns of previous floods in the 30s and the 50s. They knew to move appliances to move belongings up to high ground or the second levels of homes if they could. But they couldn't move pianos, right? The pictures after the storm of broken pianos, pianos on the, the curb, people saying, I remember sitting with my grandmother at this piano and now it's in, in pieces and molded and, and we can't use it again. And for some reason, I think those kind of physical items that they can remember so vividly being destroyed are a place where they kind of hang their grief and, and think, I lost something then. Andrew's project design was simple. Spend time in various Susquehanna River towns and chat face-to-face with residents who experienced Agnes in 1972. But then, in early 2020, disaster struck. Right in the middle of planning this research, where we're going to speak with our neighbors about Hurricane Agnes, we have a global pandemic. And we learned that coronavirus spreads you know, through droplets, we're talking with people, and that there are certain populations, like the older populations above 60 years old, that are particularly at risk. So immediately, the research that we had planned to kind of be in community with people in small groups and talk with them felt like it was not right to do. So that threw a major wrench in our plans. We've adapted and we are trying to find ways we can talk with people remotely. And it turns out there's a really active segment of people who live through Agnes that are on Facebook. Uh, there's actually a Facebook group with over 18,000 people on it that, that live through Agnes or that are related to people who live through Agnes just in Pennsylvania. And they're very eager to, to share their stories. And so in a way, coronavirus interrupted our work and it was frustrating. 
But also, I think it provides a really relevant contemporary context, the present moment of crisis and how we respond in crisis that helps us draw back to the past and see the relevance of it. I think that Facebook group in particular is helping me learn something about the importance of the move between our private pain and our private suffering and and sharing it in community. If you read through some of the comments, pictures that are posted there, you can see people really kind of recognizing each other's personhood because they went through it together. They might have actually been in completely different towns, Wilkes-Barre to Lock Haven to Sunbury to, to Lewisburg, but they remember the difficulty of it. They're glad that someone else can honor the suffering and the difficulty. And then there's this other real sense of pride that they got through it, that everyone chipped in, and that for a moment, actually, they worked side by side. They didn't give in to the desperation and the difficulty of the moment. The interesting thing about Agnes and the Agnes recovery as it relates to coronavirus today is that there was, there was politics and bureaucracy and differing opinions back then too. In the memory that people have, we all, they often go back to the moments of the flood when the waters really stream down through those creeks into the river. And floods really, they are kind of isolated in time. They're three or four days and then the flood waters recede. But there are also memories of months after, several months, maybe even a year after Hurricane Agnes, June 24th, 1972, when they're dealing with FEMA and the federal government and the state government, temporary trailers, flood zone regulations, and very technical bureaucratic things that now occupy the center of their lives. What's interesting in terms of the present day, Agnes is a case study we really ought to pay attention to. Because we're seeing more and more of these very damaging, long-lasting rain events, intense rain events. So Hurricane Harvey in 2017, it dropped over 60 inches of rain and caused $120 billion in damage. This ranked as the second most costly disaster just in terms of numbers of dollars damage. So I'm hoping in a way that Pennsylvania's story with Agnes can help us understand how people cope with these very intense rain events and how we learn to live with the floods. In chatting with Andrew, I learned that even though I have no memories of Agnes, the storm itself resonates today. There are reminders in our towns and in the land. There's kind of a ghost landscape that was written by Agnes. Parks like Huffnagel Park in Lewisburg. That used to be a, a several, several businesses and residences. Now it's empty of buildings. And Huffnagel is the surname of an officer, Gordon Huffnagel, who lost their lives uh, trying to save others in the floodwaters rushing through Bull Run, right through the heart of Lewisburg. There are other ways our towns commemorate Agnes that might not be super visible, but are plainly there. If you walk into the Milton Moose Lodge, on the right-hand side, as you get about 10 feet in, there's a marker that basically says Agnes was here. But it's uh, the flood waters, the height of the flood waters for Hurricane Agnes, and it's above my head. I'm about six feet tall. And that's as you walk into the building. And so Agnes is all around us today not just in people's memory, but in the layout of the towns, in the shape of the creeks, how waters move, the wall in Sunbury uh, as a cherished item that really protected the town. Agnes is, is still very present 
even though it's almost 50 years since the storm. If you or someone you know have Hurricane Agnes stories to share for the Agnes Flood Project, contact Andrew Stuhl and the team. They are also looking for pictures from the hurricane and the flood. Andrew is working with a research assistant, Bethany Finch, a Bucknell student who graduates in 2023, so she will be around for a while still. Also assisting is Julie Louisa Hagenbuck, founder of Stories on Tap. Right now, the best way to get in touch with us is to drop an email to our email address. And it's easy to remember. It's agnesrevisited at gmail.com. That's agnesrevisited at gmail.com. And we will set up a time to talk with you on the phone or if it's possible to do a remote video call. This feature on Andrew Stuhl and the Agnes Flood Project was made possible through a collaboration with Susquehanna Life Out Loud podcast. To hear and read stories about Pennsylvania's Susquehanna River Valley, visit susquehannalife.com. That's susquehannalife.com. Hi, I'm Peter Sintoscano, and you're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm bringing you the best of Citizens Climate Radio, and there's a lot more ahead. What's always interested me about the environment and why the environment is important is not so much the politics and the the abstract ideas, but really what's people's personal experience with environmental change. That's Jason Davis. I'm a musician and a composer, and I also lead a project called Climate Stories Project, for which I interview people about climate change impacts in their personal lives. I lead educational workshops with students and community members about climate change storytelling. And I also uh, write and compose music, which takes some of those recorded stories about climate change and puts them in the music. I'm a bass player, double bass player. So I was working on a lot of solo double bass pieces. It's a weird instrument to play by itself, but I really wanted to explore that. We are about to hear one of these music and story pieces. Jason explains how a trip to Alaska gave him the opportunity to see climate change and hear it in new ways. Uh, Shishmaref, Alaska, which is a small Inuit community on on the west coast of Alaska, kind of ground zero for climate change impacts. Because of rising ocean temperatures, a lot of the sea ice, which used to surround the village, um, has melted. And so that means in the wintertime, when you have these big winter storms coming in off the coast, what used to be blocked by the sea ice or slowed down by the sea ice, uh, these huge waves can now just come up and directly hit the beach. So that's caused a lot of erosion. There's been permafrost melting because the the ground there is based on permafrost. When the temperature warms up and the ground warms up, uh, you have a lot of houses tipping over and you have some pretty pretty intense damage. And then you also have sea level rise and um, and you also have sea ice, which people were using to hunt on, to hunt seals, and has now gotten a lot more unstable. The community members know they have to move at some point in the not distant future. During the time in the village, he taught school children interviewing skills. Then he sent them out into the community to speak with their family members and elders. The last one I did during my visit there was with this elder named John Sinek. So a little bit about our village here back when I was young. We tr- we have always had north wind all the time, 
and we would have blizzards and cold north winds for a good month. But but after that, it would be it. We would have real nice weathers for at least a month or over a month after that, where people can go out and hunt, uh, hunt and uh, get ice for drinking water. And it would be like that for a long time. And then when people, it the snow gets so cold and dry that you can hear people walking outside. Um, you could hear their footsteps outside because you can hear the crunch real easy on the snow. Nowadays, it doesn't get that hard anymore where you can hear people walking past. The snow doesn't get that hard dry anymore like it used to. When John Sinek began to talk about sound, this really got Jason's attention. After returning home to Massachusetts, Jason began composing music. The sound of people walking through the snow is is different. Um, I have this melody, which is, is part of a traditional drum dance song that I play on the bass in harmonics, which is a very high pitch. It doesn't really sound like the bass, but it's a string instrument technique. You hear John Sinek's words interspersed with this with this melody. Now we hear an excerpt of Jason Davis performing his original composition for the double bass, mixed in with the recorded voice and words of Inuit elder John Sinek. The piece is called Footsteps in Snow. <laughs> young. When I was young. We have always had north wind. We have always had north wind all the time. have blizzards and we would have blizzards and cold north winds for a good month cold north winds for a good month and it would be like that for a long time And it would be like that for a long time. But after that, but after that, the snow gets so cold. The snow gets so cold that you can hear people walking outside. You could hear their footsteps outside. 
nowadays it doesn't get that hard anymore where you can hear people walking past. The snow doesn't get that hard dry anymore like it used to. the website climatestoriesproject.org, you will see a full video of John Sinook telling his climate stories. Go to climatestoriesproject.org, select the Climate Stories tab, then click on Alaska Climate Stories. While there, you'll want to see Jason Davis in action as he performs on his double bass. Just click on the Climate Music tab. That website again, climatestoriesproject.org. Jason wants to hear your climate story. He invites you to explore his site, to read other climate stories, and then he would like you to consider contributing your own. The website again is climatestoriesproject.org. And if you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. You are hearing excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio. I am Peterson Toscano, guest host today on Spirit in Action. Stay tuned to hear Clara Fang read her poem, The Children, on why they are striking for the climate. Priscilla Talley and I talk about not always fitting in when joining climate change organizations. I reveal the challenges my husband and I face when we first began attending climate events. Everyone was straight with children and grandchildren. Priscilla shares what it's like being a queer black woman in predominantly white street environmental spaces. We discuss how we found our way forward. Plus, dancer and choreographer Lynn Newman tells us how her dance company is promoting political engagement. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more of Citizens Climate Radio, it is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog to see full show notes. As Peterson just told you, there's a lot more art, science, and inspiration from Citizens Climate Radio ahead on Spirit in Action. But first, I need to remind you of a few things. Namely, that Spirit in Action and our sister production, Song of the Soul, are both the fruits of Northern Spirit Radio. On the web at northernspiritradio.org, where we have all of our shows available since 2005, all kinds of guests and, of course, links to them and more info about them. 
and we invite you to rate the programs and post your thoughtful, insightful, or even amusing comments. And when you do, you'll likely notice where you can click to donate to help make our programming continue. We appreciate your help for Norton Spirit Radio, but especially want to make sure that you start by giving from your wallet and hands to help out your local community radio station, like the 42 or so stations who carry our Norton Spirit Radio programs. Local, community-based, listener-funded media like community radio, free of the chains of corporate interests, give you so much that you can get nowhere else. So donate to them and make sure that our media freedom lives on. But now, back to today's guest host, Peterson Toscano. Every month on Citizens Climate Radio, I feature one or more artists taking a serious look at climate change. You're about to learn about three women, a poet, a photojournalist who also writes nonfiction, and a dancer. While the art they produce is very different from each other, the artistic process helps each of them better engage in the world around them. It also gives them a chance to use their artistic abilities to deepen our understanding of climate change. I think we need art in the climate movement because in order to take action on this issue, we really need to care. And to care, we have to feel emotionally connected to the planet, to each other, to the things that, that we love. Art is the best way to do that. That's Clara Fang. I'm CCL's Youth Engagement Coordinator, and I'm a poet. Yeah, I mean, I think poetry is really just about diving into your environment and seeing seeing what there is to be seen, um, you know, really looking at reality and um, feeling how we are all connected to everything that is around us. In reading some of Clara's recent poems, one of them jumped out at me. It's a poem I believe many listeners of this podcast will find compelling, challenging, and moving. Clara explains what led her to write the poem. So I wrote this poem in October of last year. This was at the height of the youth climate strikes um, that was being led by Greta Thunberg. You know, her words were just so powerful, especially where she, she said at the UN, we will never forgive you if you don't do this. Uh, and I just like dreamed into that of like, like all the children and all of the unborn children what would they say to us who are living and who have the ability to do something about climate change? Now, Clara Fang reads her poem, The Children, on why they are striking for the climate. Because our house is on fire and no one is panicking. Because when the glaciers collapse, so do our dreams. Because we learned the alphabet saying the names of animals a is for alligator, B is for B. Because there is no planet B. Because the frogs are silent in the marsh. Because butterflies have fallen like so many petals. Because the streams are empty of salmon and bears devour the stars with their eyes. Because there is more plastic than fish in the ocean. 
because they will be gone before we've learned their names. Because we love frosty mornings and snow on the tongue. Because we learned sweetness from apples and richness from honey. Because we can't drink oil and we can't eat money. Because it shouldn't hurt to breathe. Because there are 7.6 billion of us and counting. Because we remember our mothers singing the songs of the earth. Because storms are brewing in the teacup of the Atlantic. Because we are on Easter Island and down to our last tree. Because we have no defense except to leave. Because we were made for the earth, though she was not made for us. Because if we could send a man to the moon. Because we stopped the ozone hole from growing. Because the sun shines and the wind blows. Because this is the only blue marble for light years around. Because everything we stand on is holy ground. Because Jesus would. Because what animal fouls its own nest? Because have you seen a bird lately? Because we are not drowning, we are fighting. Because how dare you? Because Exxon knew. Because you all knew. Because if you fail us, we will never forgive you. Because now is better than never. Because you want to look us in the eye when we ask you, did you do everything you could? Did you give a damn? So I get online and I got on volunteer match and then I found CCL. Both Princella and I became involved with Citizens Climate Lobby as volunteers. And at first, we both felt like outsiders. Back in 2013, when my husband Glenn and I attended the Citizens Climate International Conference, we felt welcomed, but also out of place. As a gay person in the climate movement, I wasn't sure how much of myself I could bring to the table. And if I did, would other people just then see me primarily as the gay guy who could give advice about how to get more LGBTQ people into the organization? First, I I felt the same way coming into CCL, that it just wasn't really the best fit for me. I mean, I'm also a member of the LGBT community, and I sort of felt like, can I not say this? Or like always wondering about making people uncomfortable. But then I hit this point, like you said, about, you know, people asking, oh, what do I do to invite more Black people? Like naturally. You know, maybe you're asking me because I am the Black person in front of you. Fortunately for both of us, we ultimately made connections with people in the organization. I got to know Ricky Bradley, the CCL Information Technology Director. Ricky, who lives in Dallas with his husband of over 14 years, helped me feel more at home in the organization. In fact, he asked me to consider producing this podcast. For Princella... She points to Brett Cease, CCL's Volunteer Education and Engagement Coordinator. Brett is famous among staff and volunteers for the ways he tenderly considers other people's feelings. He constantly affirms people for the work they do. He is also a delightful goofball in Zoom meetings. Ricky, Brett, 
and others like Susan Higgins, Allison Cabisco, Karina Ramirez, and Morgan McHugh, and so many more, make it possible for CCL to attract a diversity of people and then to help us find our place. I think I quit twice. And, you know, Brett was such an amazing person that he just always would motivate me again to to try to be in the space. And it's because I had those same hesitations. But what I'm really enjoying as I learn, because I'm in a learning process about diversity and inclusion work, what I'm learning is it really comes down to being the type of person where people can exist around you as they are. Even if it's not about climate change, they may just want to be around you. And that's still going to play a part into the bigger picture. Now, what the actual answer is as to how that happens as an organization, I don't have all those answers. But I can tell you from my own perspective how it feels when someone is invited and to actually be a person who holds up to your word that they deserve to be there. My husband, Glenn, is originally from South Africa. In the early 1990s, as a university student, he was part of the anti-apartheid movement and the LGBTQ rights struggle. He says it was not enough to know what you were fighting against, in this case, state-sanctioned white supremacy and homophobia, but they also needed to articulate what they were fighting for. They articulated a vision of the world they wanted to create together. I asked Priscilla about what she's fighting for. I feel like what I'm fighting for very specifically is people like myself who have come from communities that were not high-income communities that actually had to struggle to find their place in the world. I'm fighting for them to get to a, a point where their voice is not only heard, but that they understand how powerful it is. The silencing of so many groups is why the world doesn't look a lot better now. There are a lot of people waking up in the morning and saying, these people don't listen to me, they don't care about what I think. They're instead waking up and saying, I am going to change this right here, right now. And I wanna see that, I'm, I'm fighting for that in young girls. Like myself, I'm fighting for that for people who are not heteronormative and just feel like no one cares ever or that they're just cast aside. Those are my people and I want them to be empowered. And it doesn't have to be empowered for the work we do. I want them to be empowered, period. You will want to read Priscilla's writing and see her photographs. Visit PriscillaTalley.com. You will also want to follow her on Instagram and Twitter. You can get all those links at PrinciLaTalley.com. That's spelled P-R-I-N-C-E-L-L-A-T-A-L-L-E-Y. PrinciLaTalley.com. Each month, I feature an artist whose work intersects with climate change and related issues. In addition to highlighting their work whenever possible, I'd like to share with you the artistic process. How does an artist decide to do the work she does? How does that work evolve over time? What impacts does it have on the audience? And how can an artist deepen this impact? During a recent conversation with dancer and choreographer Lynn Newman, I encountered an artist with boundless curiosity. This curiosity drives her work. 
I'm an artist that works at the intersection of performing arts, community engagement, and environmental activism. As director of Artichoke Dance Company, Lynn recognizes the vital role art plays in addressing issues like climate change. Art is good at engagement and at education and at pulling at people's heartstrings. The arts can give us a way to wrap our heads around something from an emotional perspective. Some people are very wonky and like data. A lot more people like stories and an emotionally driven attachment. It's a way to draw people in, pique their interest without turning them off. It's also a way for them to get hands-on. And this is how I use the arts a lot, is to get people involved with doing things. And then they start to shift their thinking. And it's kind of like going in the back door a little bit. Early on in life, Lynn knew she wanted to be a dancer. And she started off on a pretty conventional dance career path. The word on the street was, if you wanted to work in commercial and film, you went west to L.A., and if you wanted to dance on the stage, you went east to New York. So I went east to New York. I moved to New York City thinking that I would fully be pursuing a career in concert dance, which I did for about five years. But very quickly in that process, I realized that I wanted to change almost every dance that I was in. So I started making my own work, and that drew me into a career of choreography. In addition to her creativity, Lynn brought curiosity to her choreography. She raised questions about how dances operate. Then she began to challenge long-held assumptions. Early on, I worked a lot with Senta Driver, who was a choreographer in the 80s and 90s. She became an, uh, an educator after she left dance. She was working with the idea of gender-neutral partnering, and that was very, very interesting to me. Typical canons and traditions, ballet, and in contemporary dance at that time, it was always, you know, that the males were lifting the females. And I was much more interested in the idea of equality between genders, and not even that, the idea of using physics to kind of defy size. I'm not that big of a person. I'm, I'm 5'3 and 110 pounds. I wanted to be able to lift people bigger than me, so I spent about 10 years trying to figure out how to do that. And then started to address things more topically in terms of how can, I, how can I use this information to now address social issues. After exploring gender through dance, another issue confronted Lynn and then compelled her to act. A little over 10 years ago, I started making work almost exclusively about environmental issues. It happened kind of suddenly. I kind of had this wake-up aha moment I woke to the idea that climate change is happening. I recall as a kid hearing Jimmy Carter say things like, turn down your heat and put on a sweater, or drive 55. This was the beginning of public messaging that I recalled around climate change. Oh gosh, here we are in the 21st century. This has been going on since the 70s and longer, and I didn't even realize it. So I kind of just jumped on the bandwagon and went great guns with both research and creation. Now, you may be wondering, what caused Lynn to suddenly wake up to these issues? Was it an extreme weather event? Al Gore's inconvenient truth? A stranded polar bear? 
Actually, it was a dog that helped open Lynn's eyes. I adopted a Labrador retriever. Her name was Sunny. She was a little bit older. She was slow. I'd never had a lab before, but labs are like notorious for like scavenging. She would try and put everything on the street that she found in her mouth. I'd never really paid attention to street litter before. Oh gosh, everything that she's coming across, almost everything is plastic, except for like the lone chicken bone here and there. What is going on with all this plastic stuff on the ground? And I started to research what happens to street litter in New York City. And here we have combined sewage overflow. So the water from buildings and the water from street drains, so when it rains, all goes into the same system. The capacity of New York City, because the infrastructure is over 100 years old, can't handle the amount of water when it rains anymore. That's both because of population density increase and because of climate change. Now, we we don't have like drizzly long rains like we used to. It's like you have a 20-minute deluge. And so the entire system is inundated and the processing plants for water, the water filtration plants can't handle that at that volume. So some of the water goes right into the surrounding rivers through these combined sewage overflow outlets. And I happen to live near the Gowanus Canal, and there's several of them there. So when it rained, I would go, and it's like, oh, yeah, there's trash and human detritus coming out. You know, you can just see it flowing into the surrounding waterways. Yeah, it's pretty gross. This is what I love about Lynn. She's shocked when she notices what's been under her nose the whole time. But she doesn't stop there. Her curiosity takes over and takes her farther. I started to look at how cities were constructed, you know, what happens with what trash does one trillion plastic bags look like? Like, what is that bomb together? And I started to do this with plastics, and I was like, I just gotta really jump on this and get people involved in some kind of creative way and amplify what's going on. As a result, her work shifted to take on pollution. This not only affected the choreography, though, it reshaped every aspect of the performance. One of the practices that I adopted early on was to use materials headed for landfill, mostly plastic, just because I got really interested in in plastics and plastic pollution, for the creation of sets and costumes. I would do that by collecting them through any means possible. Often at times I would have to ask friends to like collect this thing or collect that thing. The research Lynn conducted as she created her dances got her more and more into her own community. This community exposure and interaction energizes and informs the work. I find this to be a very, very fascinating way to peak interest from people who frequent that area, either working, living, recreating. What's going on here? What are you guys doing? When that question comes, that gives you an entree to both talk about your own process and talk about the issues that are going on there and see what they know about it. And that, and then you can start to get some insider knowledge. Like, oh, here's what we're working on. And oftentimes they'll be like, oh, I know this person. I'm going to connect you with them. And then it's a way of deepening my work the research behind my work, and also my connection to a community. The audience will be brought to the geographic site that we were working on. That becomes the stage. Lynn's love for data around environmental issues and equality gets infused into her work. As a result, her dances entertain and educate her audiences. 
For instance, one fact that I discovered about uh, water, and this was a piece that I made after Hurricane Sandy, I got really interested in how water gains momentum and power. There's a transfer of energy between the molecules of water bumping up against each other that exponentially grows, and that's how water will gain momentum and force. And so I was like, okay, that's really interesting. How can we, even in our individual bodies or in working with each other, display physical force so people could see the energy traveling between us and it grows as it goes? Entertaining and educating, though, are not enough for Lynn and her company. They want to do more. How do you go the step beyond, once you have people engaged, to then further engage them in ways that can really make a difference or enable them to do more? For me and for for Artichoke, at our performances, at our workshops, we'll always have petitions for people to sign around particular bills that are coming up or things that we're, we're pushing legislators on. And then a call script, little thing that you can take with you, call this number, say this, so that it makes it very easy for people to take action without feeling like they have to do a whole lot of research about it. Lynn recognizes that changing legislation takes time and steady pressure. So plastic bag legislation passed in New York City, and then it was thwarted at the state level. So effectively, New York State said, New York City, you don't have the ability to make that kind of a law. Scrap that law. For several years, we collected petitions and, and gave out call sheets at our, at our shows and at our workshops, collected thousands, and then went and delivered them in Albany. Oh, wait. And they didn't just show up at the state capitol. They dressed up for the occasion like wearing the plastic bag costumes. Because of that, we made the nightly news. Because it's like, okay, this is, you know, here's people showing up in these crazy plastic bag costumes. And it was a good visual. So I was like, okay, that's a new strategy that I learned by trying something. It's like, show up in costume, (laughs) even if it's not a show, uh, because you'll get some media coverage out of it. And in this time of coronavirus pandemic, Lynn Newman and Artichoke Dance Company have been adjusting and adapting once again. The dancers are socially distant, which is very unusual for my work because usually we're in, in, in close physical contact. The coronavirus is an awful, horrifying, dreadful thing, but I'm trying to look at it also as a moment of opportunity, just like I did our last presidential election, where it's like a whole lot of people are getting up and being vocal right now. Why? Because it's needed. Because there is so much action. And because people are getting out in the street, and because the larger picture is getting painted in a much more comprehensive way to a lot more people, you know, connecting Movement for Black Lives with the coronavirus and racial injustice and economic injustice, and that freeway that uh, Robert Moses built in my neighborhood, and that's why everybody has asthma there. The larger picture is now being seen by a lot more people than it has before. That is an amazing thing. I encourage you to learn more about Lynn Newman and Artichoke Dance Company. On their website, you will read about their mission and history. Under offerings, you will see videos of the dancers in action. Visit artichokedance.org. That's artichokedance.org.
In our show notes, I also have links to articles, interviews, and photos featuring Lynn and her dance company. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Then on the right, click on Citizens Climate Radio and look for episode 53. Their website again is citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me for this time on Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from my monthly program, Citizens Climate Radio. It's available wherever you get podcasts. To learn more, visit citizensclimatelobby.org. You can see our show notes at citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. In addition to producing Citizens Climate Radio, I also host and produce other shows. I co-host Bible Bash with Liam Hooper. I am the host and creator of Bubble and Squeak podcast. Every quarter, I create Susquehanna Life Out Loud. If you're interested in learning more about podcasting, perhaps you would like a podcast or radio show for your own organization, feel free to contact me. Visit my website, petersontoscano.com. You can find all of my podcasts, Bible Bash, Citizens Climate Radio, Susquehanna Life Out Loud, and Bubble and Squeak anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Now, I hand the controls back to Mark Helpsmeet. And with the controls firmly in my hands again, a big thanks to Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio for the artistry, the insights, and the generosity of his work, and for freeing me up today by filling in. And I'm thankful to all of you making this a better world by your prayers, actions, and support. And we'll have more guests back doing exactly that kind of thing when you again join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.